Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 27th, 2022, and my guest is author Annie Duke. Her latest book and the subject of today's conversation is Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Annie, welcome to Econ Talk. Well, I'm happy to be here, Russ. Now, I couldn't help but notice that your book has a one-syllable title, which is ideal. It's a fabulous thing, but it also <laughs> happens to rhyme with Grit, uh, a book with a apparently different perspective, but uh, which is Angela Duckworth's book, which we've talked about on this program. But talk about what is the difference between Quit and Grit. They sound like they're opposite. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the fact that it's called Quit and rhymes with Grit is not accidental. Uh, that is by design. Um, so, let me just first say that I, I really don't have any quibble with the, the book Grit. I think everybody should go and read it. I do have a quibble with the way that people, some of the takeaways that people take from it, which is not anything on, you know, on Angela Duckworth's part, um, because she, these are not the takeaways she would wish that people took from it. Um, here, here's the issue is that grit and quit, those two decisions are the same decision. And we don't think of them that way. We think of them as polar opposites. But, uh, I mean, if you think about it logically, uh, any day that I choose to stay in my job is a day I'm choosing not to quit. Any day that I quit my job is a day I'm choosing not to stay. And so at any moment, uh, given that we've started something, we have a, a choice whether to stick with it or, or to go and shift and, and do something else. And where our, where we get into trouble is with the calibration issue, right? Like when is the right time to quit? When is the right time to stick to things? And, and, my quibble with the takeaways about grit in general is that grit is good. Grit is a virtue. If the people who persevere are the heroes of our stories, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Quitters never win. Winners never quit. Like Russ, if I called you a quitter, would I be complimenting you? Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'd be insulting you. Um, and in fact, if you look up quitter in, you know, a thesaurus, you'll see that one of the synonyms is coward. And that's where I really, that's where I, I kind of get mad, right? And it's a little bit why the title of the book is so in your face, because I am kind of mad about that. Because I think that it does incredible damage to people in terms of their ability to actually achieve their goals, because people are getting stuck in things that just really aren't worthwhile. They, it isn't worth them sticking to them. For fear that somehow, like if they quit, they're a loser or a failure or people are going to judge them harshly for it, a variety of reasons that they won't do it. And the opportunity costs associated with that are so great, separate and apart from uh, the ground that you're losing just by sticking to a loser anyway. Right. And, and I think it's, I think it's, um, I think it's tragic. And we need to start saying quitting is a skill. 
And it's one that you should get good at because unlike the idea that if you, you know, if you stick to things, you'll be successful. It's no, if you stick to the stuff that's worthwhile, you'll be successful, but you've got to quit the rest. You, you have a line in the book, which I, um, is just quite profound. The opposite of a great virtue is also a great virtue. And that seems, I think most people would say, well, that can't be true or worse. That's a lie. Uh, that, that's just, that's just ridiculous. What do you mean by that? And I think one of the reasons I love it is that it's memorable and it might help you make a decision that you would otherwise miss if you didn't remember that. So talk about what you mean. Yeah. Okay. So I, let me just give credit where credit is due. Um, when I started working on the book, I, it was during the pandemic. And so I asked a whole bunch of people that I know to get on Zooms with me. And one of them was Phil Tetlock author of Super Forecasting, uh, really brilliant man. Um, and they all knew that I wanted to talk about this concept of quitting. And I got on the call with him and he said, you know, I've been thinking about this in relation to grit. And I think it's wonderful because the opposite of a great virtue is also a great virtue. So he was making a play on the opposite of a great truth is also a great truth. Um, I think that what we need to understand is that, uh, you know, Everything has upsides and downsides, right? So grit is a virtue when um, you're sticking to things through the hard times because the goal that you're trying to reach is worth it. And that is indeed a virtue because we don't, you know, when your kid goes out on the soccer field and just has one really bad game and storms off the field and says, I want to quit, right? You don't, you don't want them to do that if they overall, if they enjoy soccer, if you think that it's something that they're getting great benefit out of. You want to teach them that it's a virtue to be able to take the, the downs in order to achieve the ups, right? That being said, quitting is also a virtue because if they get a concussion on the field, you don't want them to continue the game. And that's what we have to remember, right? Is that in circumstances where the world has given us new information that tells us that what we're doing is no longer worthwhile, it is virtuous to quit. And in fact, I would say that there are certain cases where it becomes a moral imperative to quit. Oh. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you an, just a brief example of moral imperative to quit. Um, so let's say, I'll, 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 let me sort of comment it from two different ways. So, um, there's a wonderful story of quitting that occurs on the top of Mount Everest. It's, it in fact opens the chapter that says an opposite of uh, the opposite of a great virtue is also a great virtue. Um, and this, you know, I think that we think of, uh, you know, people who climb Everest is sort of the epitome of grittiness, right? Like that these are the stories that you're telling about grittiness, but there's a wonderful story about quittiness that's, that's there. So this story is about Dr. Stuart Hutchinson, John Tasky and Luke Kosicki, and they're climbing up Everest. They're part of one of those climbing ex expeditions in the nineties that were very popular. Um, there's eight climbers, three climbing Sherpas and a, and an expedition leader. And on, uh, summit day where you leave from camp four. So you've already done quite a bit of climbing up to camp four from base camp. Um, you leave at midnight and the expedition, the expedition leader has set a turnaround time. So what's a turnaround time? It's no matter where you are in the mountain, if you're not at the summit by 1 PM, you must turn around. Pretty simple. 
The reason why the turnaround time is 1 p.m. is because they don't want people to descend what's called the Southeast Ridge in darkness. It's a very narrow part of the mountain. It's very easy to slip if you can't see what you're doing. And if you fall, you're either going to fall to your death into Nepal or fall to your death into Tibet. Uh, Take your pick. Neither of them, I assume, would you like to do. All right. So our three climbers, Hutchinson, Tasky, and Kasitsky, um, are climbing. And this was, you know, at a time when the mountain was starting to get crowded and they got basically like literal traffic jams on the mountain trying to get up to the summit because so many people were trying to go at once. So it's very slow going on this day. And their expedition leader comes up behind them. And Hutchinson says to the expedition leader, hey, what time do you think it's going to be? You know, how long do you think it's going to be until we get to the summit? And the expedition leader says three hours. Goes on ahead to sort of try to make up some ground and, and get to the summit himself. Hutchinson holds Tasky and Kasitsky back and says, we have a problem. If it's going to be three hours to the summit, it's already 1130 a.m. Seems to me we're not going to get to the summit till 230. That's well past the turnaround time. So it appears we have butted up against that and we have to turn around now. So they did. And they lived. Now, Russ, I'm sure it's obvious to you why you've never heard this story, right? Like, where's the drama, right? I mean, three climbers followed the rules. They turned around. They lived like nobody's making a movie out of it, except they did. Uh, they were part of uh, the climbing expedition chronicled in John Krakauer's Into Thin Air. Uh, Rob Hall was their expedition leader. In fact, the one who told them that it was three hours to the summit. Rob Hall, I think we all know, went to the top of the mountain, got there at two, an hour past the turnaround time. Waited for Doug Hansen to get there until four, and they both perished atop the mountain. They never made it a bit down. They they were up on top of the summit. Um, so you might say, okay, well, if it was in the book and also in the movies, uh, maybe they just didn't talk about them because what a boring story. But they did. They said they were the best climbers on the mountain. And so first of all, the thing number one is why don't we even know who they are, right? And it's like all of this drama. Here are these people who quit beautifully. Um, and turned, you know, and turned around and lived. And yet we don't even remember them. So I think that's important because even people pers- who persevere in conditions that are bad past the turnaround time that he himself had set and perish, we still admire them. We still consider them the heroes of our story. But this is where I think we get into a moral imperative, right? To be good quitters, which is Hutchins and Tasky and Kasitsky all had families. Uh, Two of them were doctors. They had patients. And don't they have a moral imperative to turn around in that situation? They know that they should. The probability of death is too high. And now they have people that they can go back to and continue on with their lives and make the people, those people's lives richer for their presence in them. And so that, that I think it gets a little bit at this idea of moral imperative. I think the other place where you can see a moral imperative is quite common in For example, in startup culture, where a startup will be clearly failing, someone will say, you know, hey, it seems like it's not going well. You're not hitting any of your benchmarks. You're missing all your targets. You haven't achieved product market fit, whatever. Um, It seems like you should shut it down. And people will say, but I owe it to my employees. Okay, so they're using the language of duty here, right? I have a duty to my employees to keep it going. But if we think about it, they actually have a duty to quit. Why? Because once they've determined that the equity isn't worthwhile and startup employees are generally working for very low cash comp and compared to what they could get on the market, 
uh, but they're working for equity that they deem to be possibly life-changing. Once the uh, founder has determined that equity is not worth it, they have a duty to the employee to allow them to go so that they can go get paid what they deserve, right? Whether that's at a new startup where they're going to be working for equity that has more value or whether it's in an enterprise where they're just going to get salaried at their market rate. Um, and I, so I think that we turn that on its head, right? We say I have a duty to stick it out because I, you know, I've convinced these employees to come work for me for no money and, and, and equity. And so I got to keep trying, right? Except that the minute that you've determined that equity isn't worthwhile, the duty is actually the opposite. Just to shut them up, that you know, shut it down and let them go free. Yeah, those are you know incredible stories. Um, obviously, the Everest one slightly more incredible than the founding employee story, but they're both um, powerful because they illuminate a moral issue that, on the surface, doesn't seem like a moral issue. And the, and I think your your insight about character is is very apropos. Uh, we often admire those people who don't quit because they quote persevered when in fact it was irrational or immoral you know the story i like to tell of fred smith when he started fedex and he ran out of money and he went to chicago to the bankers from from memphis and and they turned him down they said no and um he was going to get back on the plane and fly back to memphis and tell his employees that he was sorry that he couldn't make payroll this was not a tough decision because the cash register was empty. Yeah. Um, the bank account was empty. But instead, uh, he went to Reno. He saw Reno on the board of of departures, put all that he had. I think he'd taken money from his uh, sister's uh, the trust, their shared trust fund. And they got, he got sued for this too, by the way. Uh, yeah. And he goes... I don't know whether this is the money he took or he was taking it all along. I can't remember. But he ends up in in uh, Reno and he puts whatever money he has on red or 17 or whatever it is and makes just enough to go back and make payroll and the rest is history. And I love that story because it's about gumption and guts and not quitting and persevering and believing in your dream. The problem is that's the story we hear. The ones where that we don't hear are the ones where it was a bad dream. It wasn't going to make it. And the hubris and ego of the founder – Came, other people paid the price for that. Now, in his case, he made it. A lot of respect for Fred Smith, tremendous amount, but he's a visionary. Uh, most visionaries have a very um, different quitting compass. <laughs> it's a very bad meta- mixed metaphor, but they struggle to make those decisions for ego and for uh, this delusion. And we celebrate the ones who make it. And we don't chronicle the people who don't make it. And that is... Uh, there, there are pluses and minuses to that, but I think observe make your observations fantastic. The other, the other point I want to make is that uh, I, I just want to come back to this mantra of Phil Tetlock, former um, past econ talk guest. God bless him. Uh, the opposite of a great virtue is also a great virtue. One of the ones I love like that is you have to learn how to say no, and that's a very powerful truth. Right. It's really true. But you also have to learn how to say Correct. yes. Even sometimes saying yes to things that don't look. uh, promising lead to extraordinary changes in your life. And so all these things are a question of nuance, I think, and and balance. Uh, Before we... Yeah, actually speaking of Phil Tetlock, during the pandemic, when I was somewhat busy, he 
he um, reached out to me and said, you know, we're having trouble creating good training for novice forecasters and these counterfactual forecasting problems. Um, you you kind of teach this stuff and consult on it. So maybe like you would be able to put it into terms or a voice that would that would actually create a good training. And you could maybe think about the things that actually like work with your clients and apply that to this training. So so I said, yes. Why? Because I love Phil and I was willing to, and Barb, by the way, his wife, and I was willing to make time for that, right? And that turned into four very large scale studies um, that were incredibly fruitful. So uh, so I completely agree with you, right? I'm trying to work on both, yeah, right? Being more careful about saying no to things that I, I'm predicting are not right. going to be worth my time. And saying yes to stuff that looks kind of wild and crazy, but like, wouldn't that be cool? And I might learn something super new about myself or something super new about the world. So I love that example because that's a good case of like the yin and yang, right? And you might, the reason I like it is there's this other piece to it for me, which is you might make a human connection that you otherwise wouldn't make. That's not going to make you more money and it's not going to lead to all those other studies. Right. not going to help you understand something. You're just going to have a human experience that's precious. And I love that. It's very uh, powerful. The, I, I think the in the case of the yes-no, what we're saying is you have to make room in your life for serendipity. There are things that yes. are going to come along you can't predict, can't imagine. And if you always say no, you will be comforted by the fact that you had more time for other things, but you'll never see the things you didn't get. And you'd write about that a lot in the book, actually. Very, yeah. Very I mean, so actually, I'd like to, in re, in relation to that, I'd like to bring up some a little fact about ants because I think this this goes really well with that. So, um, so you know the song like the ants go marching one by one, hurrah, hurrah, right? So we know that we have that image. If you've seen any cartoon or or you've actually watched ants yeah. on a nature show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> They're marching in a line, yeah, they're right? they're really good at that. Uh, so those, those ants are forager ants. Um, they're a part of the colony that's meant to go out and find food, basically. Um, and so if you watch if you watch these forager ants approach like a new territory, you'll see that they're all kind of scattered around. So they're not marching in a line yet. Uh, and then uh, one of them will find food and they'll take the food and they'll be carrying it back to the colony. And on the way back, they lay down a pheromone trail. So it's just a chemical trail that the other ants are going to detect. So they're only doing it on the way back once they've found food. They're laying down this trail. So at first it's pretty, you know, it's pretty faint because it's only one ant. Um, but now if another ant detects that trail, it will now go along the trail. It will find the food. And then when it's bringing that food back, it will also lay a pheromone trail down on top of that. And you can see how this trail is now getting reinforced, uh, attracting more and more ants to the same trail until... They're marching one by one to whatever, the watermelon that fell on the ground. All right. So that's how we think about them. But actually, if you look at the behavior, once there's a strong pheromone trail laid down, uh, what you'll see is about 10 to 15% of the ants don't actually get with the program. They're just kind of like wandering around, right? So what's the deal with those ants, right? Like, are they ant anarchists? Like, are they malingerers? Like, what's the deal with these malingering ants. And it turns out, no, they're not anarchists at all. They're not malingerers. They're actually serving an incredibly important function for the colony, which is that they are continuing to explore. So you've got the ants are exploiting the food source that that's high quality, a watermelon or whatever, but the other ants are continuing to explore, 
So they're saying yes in that sense, right? Like they're like, yeah, sure. I'll keep going looking around. Um, and what is that? Why is that so incredibly important that they're doing that? Well, first of all, the food source might go away. So someone might clean the watermelon up, right? Maybe it's like on the back deck or something like that. And someone comes out with the hose and then that, that watermelon is gone. Uh, it's really good that this 10 to 15% of the colony is continuing to explore other food sources because it means they have backups. Insurance. Right. It's insurance that allows them to sort of cover, you know, to your point, right. They're increasing the chances for serendipity for finding something else. That's really great. Um, The other thing, and I think that this is an overlooked point is that it may be that the food source that they have is totally stable but the other ants might find a better one. And that's the issue of opportunity cost, right? Is that once we're, once we're exploiting something, whether it's like a product that an enterprise is selling or a hobby that we're pursuing or a pro, you know, project, a job, whatever it is, right? Once we're doing that, we tend to cease to explore. Right. So I think it's funny that a lot of the encouragement is around say no, because I think we're actually quite good at saying no, because we actually don't even consider the possibility of saying yes or no. And if you don't consider the possibility of saying yes or no, you're saying no to all of that stuff by default. Right. So what the ants are doing is saying, well, this is great. Right. I love that. But maybe there's something better out there. And they're continuing to explore it. So it's serving dual purposes, right? It's giving them a backup plan, but it's also allowing them to find something that really ought to have been their plan A. And I think this relates exactly to what you're saying, right? And you can see this behavior uh, to, you know, this duality in the ants because they're doing kind of both things at once, right? They're exploiting the food source that's there, but they're also continuing to explore and basically say yes to all the other places that you could go look. Uh, and they're more likely to find something. So obviously we're not ants. We don't have a big colony. I can't clone myself. But to your point, I can say yes to stuff. Yeah. And if I say yes to stuff, maybe I'm going to find something there that's awesome or a good backup plan or better than what I'm already doing. Now, I want to say something about quitting that I'm curious to get your reaction. It's a it's a personality trait of mine. And I've often thought of it as a... Um, as a flaw, but it, maybe it's a feature, not a bug, uh, and it's consistent with your point. I, I tend to get very excited about new projects, and I'm not the best collaborator, uh, and I haven't been until I got in this job as president of Shalem College. I kind of picked things where I didn't have to collaborate, right? When you're a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, you're it's a deliberately lonely life. It's not lonely. It's just that you're often alone. Uh, and you can collaborate with other people in your field if you want, but you're also free to just work on what you love. And it's really lovely. But when you have to collaborate, in my experience of my own self, if I get really excited about a project and I need your help, okay, or we're going to do it together, and I tell you about it, and I'm all fired up, and and you go, well, that's really cool. I like it. too. That's fantastic. And then nothing. You don't follow up. You don't respond. You're just, maybe you got busy. Maybe you decided you didn't like the idea as much as, as, as I did initially. I lose all my enthusiasm, right? I'm, mm. I have very little self 
because I'm going to find another one. I'm like that ant. I'm going to go off. I'll find another thing I'm excited about, and I'll find somebody who does want to do it, or I'll get you fired up about the new one. And I've always wondered whether that's a you know a character flaw that that I very quickly give up on what I was so excited about to start with. And I'm not, now you're making me feel better about it. Still, could, it could be a character flaw, but but I think um, it, it's a um, a recognition of the opportunity cost. If you're not enthusiastic and you're not following right. through with my, with me, and I'm going to have to then carry the ball by myself, it just I deflate. I'm done. I'm going to find new project. I'm going to wander off, find a different piece of watermelon. And I think um, I've never thought about that as a as a possible good character trait. M- maybe it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So, so here's the thing, though. I mean, it, again, it, like it depends on your values. It depends on what the signals for success might be for yeah. you, right? So, uh, for you, it sounds like. Um, you don't feel like you're going to be successful in a project if you don't have a collaborator who's equally enthusiastic. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. So uh, this goes into something that we could call kill criteria. Um, if you want to be softer about it, you could call them exit criteria. Uh, I like the term kill criteria for the same reason that I put in very large letters the quit right on the front of my book. Um Because I want people to think about these things this way, right? In the boldest possible terms. But at any rate, so for you, uh, as you're thinking about, um, ooh, I'm kind of interested in this idea. I want to explore this. What are the things that, um, what are the things that would tell me that this isn't going to be something that's success, a, a really valuable use of my time? Right. Well, if I can't get a collaborator to be as successful as I am, um, then I really ought not to do this. So I'm going to do very little thinking about it. I'm going to sort of form enough of an idea to be able to communicate it to someone who I would like to collaborate with. Uh, and if they're not as excited and engaged as I am, I already know it's not going to be worth my time. Right. So that's actually a really reasonable way to approach a project. So I actually approach books that way. When I have an idea for a book, there are a few people that I call. I hardly form the book idea. I am able, like with quit, it was something like, you know, quit, like the opposite of grit. I said that, um, uh, you know, and I don't mean like I said, I don't mean like the opposite, but like, I mean, the dialogue with grit that uh, I think that people in general think that we uh, quit things too early. I think the science tells us that we quit things too late. And I would really like to explore this topic. That was about what I had. And uh, I wrote, um, I think the first person I wrote was Michael Mobison, but then I think Danny Kahneman followed quickly after that. Um, and Phil Tetlock, because I just wanted to see like how did they react to that, mm-hmm. right? And then they just start, they were really excited, right. like they were like, okay, yeah. So then I'm like, okay, I think now I should go further, right? So I'm always sort of pushing to see like, is this a no or is this a yes? And I know that if I can't get, if Danny Kahneman thinks it's a stupid idea and it's not worth exploring. That's a really good signal for me. So I shouldn't put a whole lot of work into it until I've got those gut checks from people who are way smarter than me, much deeper into the science than I am, and are are going to tell me whether it's something that they think is worth putting on a piece of paper, right? And obviously, this has to do with, in particular, what I like to write about, which is, to be fair, their science. 
So if the people who created the science don't think it's worth writing about, I'm not going to continue with it. Yeah, the 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 parallel thing with with grit is, but don't you have enough faith in your own idea? What you're going to rely on other people to decide whether this is a good project for you. And I wonder sometimes when I get shot down with a creative idea, not really outside the box idea. This is something more crazy than just here's an idea for a book, but I propose something absurd. I wonder if, and, and I get shot down, and I go, uh, no, one, no one likes it. it. It's very hard for, I think, most of us emotionally to then say, but I think I'm still right, especially if the people we're asking we respect and, and are smarter than we are. And I think, I worry sometimes that, that I cast my own decisions in that kind of light, that, yeah, it was a rational decision because I needed to, they didn't think it was worth it, they're smarter than I am, but sometimes I wonder if it's just like, I'm a quitter. And, and it comes to your point about... Uh about the cultural baggage that we have, mostly from our parents. You know, you gave the example of the kid on the soccer field. A lot of what we do as parents and a lot of what our parents did to us is to get us to push through pain because often, not always, but often, great rewards come from that. And and that is hard for human beings to anticipate those rewards sometimes, especially when we're young. We're, we have trouble. Uh, let, me just, yeah, let me just emphasize that, especially when we're young. So I just want to emphasize that because I think that separate and apart from where parents go wrong with that, and they they do, they take it too far. But um, I, obviously, it's a good lesson to take someone who's six and has never sort of gone through the downs to see what the ups might be on the back end of it and teach them, uh, you don't need to quit, you can push through it. I agree, especially when they're young. The problem is that we think that applies to 30-year-olds. That's the problem. And it doesn't because 30-year-olds aren't walking off the soccer field. That's the problem. Yeah. Um, well, I want to take another example that, that you use in the book that will apply to the Everest uh, example. And I think it's an incredibly poignant and powerful example of it. Uh, the example you use is that if you finish a half marathon, people are impressed. Wow, you ran 13.1 miles. That's a lot. Yeah. But if you run a marathon and you stop halfway, you're a quitter. And you did the exact same thing. And I think about the absurdity, the utter tragic absurdity of being 300 meters from the top of Mount Everest. And it's one o'clock and it's one o'clock and you're supposed to turn back and you say, I'm not going to stop short of the summit. I can see it from here. And of course, the answer, one answer you should give yourself is, well, I can see the summit and I'm 300 meters away. Didn't I kind of do what I wanted to do? Can I? <laughs> to, to that point, you know, there was something interesting because these are all cognitive phenomena, yeah. right? Like, so one of the things that I want to be clear about is that what we're talking about is the cognitive state of being in the losses. So uh, when you think about like your balance sheet, right? Like in the losses means that you're losing from whatever a mark was, right? So uh, if you buy a stock, the mark is going to be the price that you bought it at, Um and if you're below that, you're in the losses. If you're above it, you're in the gains. Okay, so that would be like on an actual ledger, right? Yeah. On an actual balance sheet. But we have this mental accounting that occurs, yeah. right? Um, which gets distorted. So sometimes it overlaps, right? If I buy a stock at 50 and it's trading at 40, both on my physical ledger and my, my cognitive ledger, my mental accounting, uh, I'm in the losses in both. But if I buy a stock at 50, it goes up to 75 and is now trading at 60 on my 
actual physical ledger, I'm in the gains $10. And, but in my mental account, I'm, I'm in the losses $15 cause I'm 15 short of 75 now. Right. Okay. So it doesn't matter that I was up, um, 10. So, uh, so when we, take like a marathon and this really interesting thing about a half marathon versus a full marathon or where we are in comparison to Everest. If it's a half marathon, the goal, the end point is 13.1 miles. So if I complete that, I'm now no longer in the losses in comparison to that goal. But if I only complete 13.1 miles in comparison in the context of a marathon, I am short 13.1 miles. Now I'm in the losses, no matter that if I created a physical ledger, I would be in the gains 13.1 miles. In other words, physical ledgers measure from the starting line, but mental ledgers measure from the finish line. Okay. So this is the problem we have with Everest, right? I'm 300 feet from the summit. Never mind that I just climbed 29,000 feet in the air. I'm a loser. Yeah. If I turn around, because I'm closing that mental account in the losses. So if you wonder why does somebody continue past the turnaround time, right? Or even get to the summit at 4 p.m., which is what Doug Hansen did, even though the turnaround time was 1 p.m., it's because he was in the losses. In his head. And as Richard Thaler, like in his head. So Richard Thaler points out, we do not like to close mental accounts in the losses. So anyway, Richard sent me something hilarious. It was like, it's probably about a year ago. Um, and it was, a, you know, a little bit complex. I didn't end up in the book, but uh, basically there's some sort of argument now among mountaineers mm. that um, if you look at like the the popular peaks that people uh, climb, there's some argument about what the peak actually is. Oh, love it. So now all of a sudden they're saying that a bunch of people who say they've done like the seven peaks or whatever, the seven summits. Maybe they didn't actually summit them because there is now an argument about what exactly is the top of Everest oh, or boy. what is the top <laughs> of Kilimanjaro, right? Which just brings up the absurdity it's, of all of this right. in the first place. It's completely absurd, but it's the way that we work cognitively. But, but I'm going to push back a little bit because I, I do think there's there's a um, a powerful reason that we struggle with this mental accounting, right? And anybody who's run, who's been a runner or done the equivalent of running in, in a project, meaning a long, arduous trek, uh, I think understands this. And I just want to say, and I used to keep this quiet because I thought it was too, too. Uh, it wasn't, it, it wasn't sufficiently humble. I ran a full marathon it, when I was uh, younger and finished in the blazingly fast time of four hours and 20 minutes. But the fact is, I am very proud of that. And I'm proud of the fact that I finished. The fact that for the week after, I couldn't climb stairs without a great deal of pain. Uh, <laughs> let's put that to the side and let's uh, ignore the fact that I could have really done some long run damage to my body. Um, but the reason I finished and it was painful, I wasn't, wasn't spitting up blood or anything and a bone wasn't sticking out of my leg. But the reason it was hard, the reason I finished is, par- is partly because of it was my dad, right? My dad said, don't quit. Finish what you planned. This whole idea of the mental accounting, and the reason that's useful. The flip side, I think, of your argument is, if you start off to climb Everest or run a marathon and say, "Well, I'll just get as far as I'm comfortable, and I'll I'll, I'll try to get far," 
And whatever it is will be gravy. If I, if it's five miles, great. If it's 13.1, I'll be proud. 20 would be wonderful. And if by some chance I finish, oh, that's nice. You don't get very far. Often that we feel, at least maybe it's wrong, but we feel that if we take that approach, we're going to cheat ourselves. We're going to quit too soon. So instead we go to the other extreme, which is insane, which is got to finish, got to finish. Otherwise, I'm a loser. And we use that as a way to push yeah. past short-run pain for long-run benefit. It's why we go to grad school. It's why we invest in a startup. It's why we run marathons. And a lot of it, by the way, of course, is is self-esteem. Uh, I mean, we didn't talk about this, but when I read Into Thin Air, for me, the, and it's a great read. Just If you haven't read it, it's an extraordinary read. I, I finished that book thinking, this is insane. This is, to what purpose? Did this person lose half his nose? To what purpose did these people die? They didn't achieve anything. And of course, their answer would have been, no, I tested myself and was not found wanting. And there's something deep inside us that needs that, uh, whether it's hit the approval of our, of our parents, often no longer alive. <laughs> we don't care. We still push through. Uh, there is there's value to it, and it's also, in many ways, what you're saying is it's like a sickness almost, and uh, it, it yeah. is a little complicated that way. Yeah, so this is what I would say. The opposite of a great virtue is also a great virtue, and that's true when it comes to goals that we set for ourselves. Goals are motivators. Yeah. As you said, they get we, they get us to push toward the finish line even when things are hard, and that is not a bad thing. Now, I would argue that if you enter a marathon saying, I'll run as far as I feel comfortable, that you're still going to run toward the finish line. Because no matter whether you say that to yourself or not, like there's a finish line, you're not going to want to quit before you get to it. So I have very little concern about people saying, you know, but if I start, you know, if I'm, if I'm not feeling good, whatever, right? Like I, I think that creating an all or nothing situation around the finish line, uh, it's probably not helpful since we already do that in our heads. But it's true, right? Like if I'm on the last two miles and my legs are cramping, it'll make me finish. And I'm going to feel pretty good about that. I'm going to look back on that and feel pretty proud of having pushed through. It's probably a good thing that I did, assuming that I'm, I wasn't in medical danger, right? But here is the problem. This is where we get to the opposite of a great virtue is also a great virtue. Let's take Siobhan O'Keefe. Siobhan O'Keefe entered the 2019 marathon. On mile four, she started experiencing pain in her leg. On mile eight, her fibula bone snapped. She broke her leg. Now, obviously, the medical tent was like, yo, stop running. But she did not. And she finished the race. Now, this is where we get into trouble with this, right? Because the great thing about goals is that it sets a finish line and it gets you to continue to run toward it, even when it's hard. The bad thing about goals is that it sets a finish line and it gets you to run toward it, no matter what, even when your leg is broken. And if we take, you know, it creates, in some ways it creates a short-termism, right? Like grit is really meant you to, it meant to help you with the long view. I know it's bad right now, but it's going to be worth it in the long run. But weirdly, when we set these goals, it creates a short-termism because the goal itself becomes the object of our grit. 
right? Whatever that short-term finish line is. Because I assume for Siobhan O'Keefe, the goal was I love running marathons and I would like to run many of them in my life. This was not her first marathon. Um, and by continuing to run, she was risking grave injury that might have prevented her from ever running another one. So she was actually causing herself to lose ground toward what she herself had declared would make her happy. And that's where we get into real trouble, you know, and, and, uh, this really goes under another thing that Richard Thaler talks about is that goals are really graded pass fail. And not only does it mean that you're going to head toward them no matter what, but he points out that it can stop you from starting things that are worthwhile. Because as he says, if the only thing that is success is getting a gold medal in gymnastics, why would you ever take your first lesson? Yeah. Uh, you were a very successful poker player. Uh, one of the things that's fun about poker, it's, uh, it's a game everybody can play. Many people have played it casually. Uh, and most of us who played it casually had no idea what the real serious poker is until then it became a TV phenomenon. And, and I think a lot of people got access to it and it created great prizes and so on. But I think it's um, another wonderful, simple mantra for people to think about outside of poker, which is knowing when to fold them. Uh, and talk about your own experiences and what you learned from poker. First, talk about what you achieved in poker. You can, you, you showed some grit. <laughs> you, you pushed through. I'm sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure you pushed through a few losses. Uh, I, you know, I played for 18 years. I did quit too late, which isn't surprising. Uh, one of the hardest things to quit is who you are. And when you're on television known as a poker player, gosh knows that becomes your identity. And if you walk away, what does that mean? for you, right? Like, I think that's very hard. Um, so here's the thing about poker. So first of all, you, obviously knowing, you know, the power of knowing when to walk away is a nod to Kenny Rogers. Um, when I was playing poker, I would get very annoyed because anytime that I like went on the radio or was going on a television show, they would usually play that song. Oh, yeah. Got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away and know when to run as I was coming on is like the intro sure. to me coming on. And so I grew to hate that song. Eventually they switched it to poker face by Lady Gaga. So that was a little bit better. Um, uh, but I decided I was going to reclaim the song so that I could, I could love it again. And um, here's, here's the thing. And, and I think Kenny Rogers actually says something very insightful here about the game of poker. You got to know when to hold them. That's about sticking. No one to fold them. That's about quitting. No one to walk away. That's about quitting. No when to run. Also about quitting. So 75% of the refrain is about quitting, not sticking. Yeah. And that's actually very much true to poker. So I think that when people think about what makes a poker player amazing and then they were going to list off, it's like a real amazing ability to raise, rate, read the other player's hand, you know, super aggressive, like, they, they're bold and, and courageous and like pushing all their chips into the pot. Well, first of all, let me just say great poker players try to avoid putting all their chips in the pot. Uh, they're very picky about when they do that. Um, they actually play something called small ball more, but that's a whole other story. But regardless of that, here's the thing. If you really want to know what separates great players from amateurs, it's quitting. So folding is quitting. So quitting is just cutting your losses. That's all it is, 
right? That right. And so in game theory, all it means is stopping something that you've already started. And it means right. it means finalizing that loss in the ledger. Right. It's it means right, exactly. it means accepting it and and closing that part of the ledger in the negative, in the red, when there's always a chance you might get that inside straight. And- right. Exactly. And that that is that's something that's been well documented originally, really in 1979 from Kahneman Tversky, that when we have those losses on the books and uh, we have to now quit and turn those into a sure loss that will become uh, risk seekers. In other words, we, we want to keep the gamble on actually a little bit to the FedEx guy, right? Yeah. He became oh, yeah. a risk seeker and went and went and gambled this money, which literally is nuts. Right. Literally, he went literally. Gamble, but it was either way, it was a gamble, right? Yeah, but it was nuts to go. And, you know, I, I guess he got, I would have sued him too. <laughs> um, what are you doing? Um, but regardless, right? Um, uh, we become risk-seeking when we're in the losses. Now, in order to keep risk on, that means you can't fold because fold is risk off. All of it, right? It's like, I'm going to take all the risk off. So uh, that's why we think about loss cutting. All right, so amateur players are terrible at this. So when you look at amateur players, when you look at their first two-card starting combinations that they get dealt in the game of Texas Hold'em in a full-handed game, uh, they'll play over 50% of the two card start starting combinations. Now I just want to remind you that there's nine people at the table. So if you think about sort of like what's their fair share, it would be one ninth. Now, obviously you don't just play your fair share, particularly if you're good, but let's agree that an amateur should not be playing over 50% given that there's nine players at the table. That's probably not a winning idea. My mom plays a hundred percent. And if she could play 120, she would. In our in our right. family poker games, she she she. I want to see the cards. I get it, mom. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so professionals will play between fifteen and twenty five percent of the two card combinations that they're dealt. Now, think about this: the relationship between how many hands you play and how good you are, um, uh, you is per is correlated, right? So, the better you are, the more hands you're allowed to play, and the reason is that you can get more edge over the other people at the table in terms of the choices that you make later um, that would allow you to play more than your fair share of hands, right? Because like 25% is more than your fair share at a nine-handed table, except that you're going to be better than everybody else at playing them. And so therefore you're allowed to, right? So, but amateurs are playing over 50%. This is part of the reason why a pro can play 25% because they're playing all these really bad hands. All right, so that's number one. Now, to the point of your mother, what are the reasons that somebody won't fold there? There are a variety of them. Uh, But right at the start, part of it is it's so painful to fold a hand where you then see the rest of the cards and you realize you would have made something good that people refuse to do it. There's a a saying in poker, any two cards can win. And what professionals add on to the end of it very quietly is, but not enough of the time to be profitable, yeah. right? So, but but it's like the number of times someone leans out, like, oh, I folded a seven deuce. And look, now there's a seven, seven and a two on the board. It's like, okay, <laughs> right? I mean, like there's a few people who had continued up Everest and they lived. Yeah. Exactly. They've got like frostbite and stuff, right? But they lived, right? Like, or or the FedEx guy, I mean, he lived. Right. But would we know the story if he went and gambled and he lost on that bet? Not in a million years. And that's what's almost always going to happen. 
particularly, by the way, if you're betting 17, right, which is one number. So mostly you're going to lose all your dough and nobody's ever going to hear about you. But what if, right? So this, these what ifs, these counterfactuals are incredibly hard for us. And so what ends up happening and part of the reason why people play these hands is that once you've started something, the only way to know for sure how it would turn out is to keep going. And what that means is that we're going to butt up against the certainty that there is nothing else we could do but fold or quit before we're willing to do so. So your mom plays the hand because she wants to see the next cards to be guaranteed that they have no relationship whatever to her hand. So she has no regrets about folding because she understands at that point, it's a certainty that she could not have won. But that is long after the point that it's correct to walk away from things because you're already fallen into the crevasse. You're already at the top of Everest and it's 2 p.m. But you don't know my mom. She's really lucky. So it turns out it's a good strategy for her. Good, good strategy for her. Now, when we, as we get back to Kenny Rogers, the other thing amateurs do poorly is fold after they've already entered the pot. Okay. So once you decide to play the hand, you now are putting money in the pot. Okay. So what you'll hear people say, they literally say this out loud, is, well, I couldn't fold because I had too much money in the pot already. I had to protect my chips. And it's like, not your chips anymore. (laughs) That's money already in the pot. What matters is, is the next dollar you're going to put in the pot worthwhile. And this is just very, very classic sunk cost effect. We take into account the resources that we've already spent in deciding whether to continue and spend more. Those resources have nothing to do with it. The only thing that matters is if I bet a dollar here, am I getting a positive return on that dollar? Doesn't matter that I already put money in the pot. I shouldn't care about that. But boy, amateurs really, 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 really care about it. Yeah. The flip side of that is, well, I didn't lose the money because it wasn't mine. It was the house's. Uh, well, once it's in your pile, it's yours and you gave it away. <laughs> oh my gosh. Right. Uh, right. I, I, right. I come, That's so true. I want to come back to some costs, but. I'd like you to reflect, if you can, and, and I don't know if it's useful, but I'd like you to reflect on how that experience of 18 years, you know, looking at amateurs and, and saying, mm, that's a mistake, I will not make that one, or I made a mistake and I won't do it again. Did that spill over into the rest of your life, or were you just a really good poker player? <laughs> no, it, it, it spilled over into the rest of my life. Most of the things that I learned from poker spilled over into the rest of the of my life. Now, I will tell you that there is evidence um, that people do get better at this stuff with experience. In other words, when you see a lot of iterations of it, um, you get better. So, so an example of that would be, so there was a very large scale study that was done by Colin Kammerer, along with a few um, collaborators, including Richard Thaler, uh, where they looked at trip sheets from cab drivers in the eighties. Um, this was before Uber, obviously. And back then what you would do is you would rent a cab because most people didn't own the medallion. Um, you'd rent a cab for a 12-hour shift and then it would be up to you, Russ, to decide when you wanted to drive during that. So what they wanted to understand is, because uh, they had the trip sheets, um, were cab drivers driving a lot when there were lots of fares and driving very little when there were very few, which would be a rational strategy. In the same way in poker, I want to maximize the time I'm playing well and minimize the time I'm playing poorly. Um, I want to maximize my time in good games, where meaning where the other players are quite bad. And I want to minimize my time in games where the other players are quite good. So this is just generally what we want to do in life. Um, And so they wanted to know if that was what the cab drivers were doing. And they found something very surprising, which was that when there were lots of fares, 
the cab drivers would quit really fast. And when there were very few fares, they would go forever. So this is going to bring us back to Mount Everest and the marathoners. Um, uh, in fact, this, by the way, they had this strategy was so bad that compared to a rational strategy, they were, lo- they would have made 15% more money if they had actually followed what a rational actor would do. And in fact, if they had just said, I'm getting the cab, I'm going to drive for six hours, no matter what, they would have made 8% more than they did. Right, so the question is why, why when there are no fares, are they driving for like the whole 12 hours? And why, when there are lots of fares, are they getting out of their cab in like an hour and a half? And it's because they had a goal. They set a finish line. So they had an earnings goal for the day, say 300. And when they hit the earnings goal, they quit because they're done. They cross it. You know, nope. In a marathon, nobody keeps running past it. Like, oh, I feel pretty good today. I'm just going to keep going. That's a great point. Right. It's why, <laughs> it's why people who run half marathons don't just randomly finish a marathon because they feel in fine fettle, right? Like you finish once you're done. So anyway, so they would finish. Um, once they, once they hit the earnings goal, but if they hadn't hit the earnings goal, they would keep going forever. Okay. So we know that that's actually quite bad behavior. Um, well, somebody followed up with a study and I'm just blanking on the name. It's in a, it's, it's in the book. So please go look in the book because I'm blanking. We'll put a on link the up name. to it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, followed up. And what they did find was that people did get better with experience. So they still weren't perfect, but the cab drivers who were real veterans, were, were, were much better than the ones who were not in terms of this behavior. Yeah. I, I'm always skeptical of that kind of study because you don't know. It could be they really need to make $300 every day because they won't make their rent. And you could say rationally, well, make the 300 tomorrow when at the time when the fares are easier to get. But maybe it's not so predictable when the fares are good and when they're not so good. And so maybe as you get experience, you get better at maybe predicting that and you can smooth it a little bit, but I, I have a feeling. Yeah. Except, except the difference is that it's, it's that the experienced drivers, they don't stop at their earnings goal. They just drive when the driving is good. But the goal of life so, is to make as much money as possible. Maybe they want more leisure. The, the, well, except the goal of life, the goal in life is also not to spend 12 hours. If, driving if you around. Have to, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like that's not fun. <laughs> So, so essentially, if, if, if you're going to spend some of your time driving around in a cab for 12 hours, let's make sure that you're making like 1200 bucks. Yeah. Do it. And then, and then quit the day that it's not number one. And then number two, the other thing is that there are predictable times when you know there's going to be lots of fairs, like when there's concerts, yeah, yeah. concerts around. And if we think, if we think about an inefficient market, this is why when there are, when you're, there's a big concert or it's rush hour, it's impossible to find a cab because all of these cabs made their earnings and they got off the street, right? So it actually creates kind of an inefficient market as well. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's just like, I got to make $300 a day because obviously they have to make 300 on average because what the veteran drivers are doing is they're driving past the 300 mark because they understand like, no, I mean, as long as this concert's around, I'm just going to, or, you know, it's a busy time at the airport. I'm going to drop the thing off, come right back to the airport, get the fare, drop the thing off, come right back to the airport. And I'm going to do that as long as it's busy. Yeah. I, if I'd been the referee on that paper, I'd, I'd ask him to show that the, I'd, I'd check into how predictable the, how easy it is to figure out when the, when there are a lot of fairs. Certainly. Yeah. When there's a concert. Yeah. But day to day. I, don't I mean, know. you know, you have morning rush hour, yeah. afternoon rush yeah, yeah. hour, Saturday nights, You'd like think. it's New York city, You'd right? Think. Like, yeah. but there could be more variability than we, than we expect. But the interesting point also for me is that, the, and this is true of Uber also, and we had uh, 
Now, John was talking about that in a recent episode. It's um, newcomers, amateurs, whether they're poker players, cab drivers, you name it, they make lots of mistakes. And the best ones learn and get better at it and narrow that right. that gap. Yeah. And the others just go, I'm not good at this, bye. And they drop out of the pool after a while. So there's a steady inflow often. Of, not in poker. <laughs> well, you know, as Nassim Talib. I mean, it depends on how much money yeah, you as have. As Nassim Talib would point out. Here, here, and this is this is where I would, this is where the problem is in poker, is that, and I think this is generally the problem with quitting, that the more uncertain the system that you're deciding in, the e- the more that it becomes a petri dish for cognitive bias. Okay, so the the question is why why would people continue trying to butt up against the the dead certainty that you have to turn around? Well, because the objectively correct moment to quit is a decision made under uncertainty. There's there's this particular irony to this, which is that when we start things, most things that we start are made under uncertainty. Um, there'll be an influence of luck on the outcome, like a pandemic hitting um, or a recession or yeah. something like that. But But then there's also just we know very little in comparison to all there is to be known. Right. So we can think about somebody who's investing in a startup, for example, right? That maybe, maybe is early product market fit or pre product market fit. This very high uncertainty. You have like three people on the team. You don't really know how that person's going to be as a CEO. Is the product really going to work out? Are customers going to buy it? All these questions. Think about taking a job. What do you know about the company that you're going and taking a job with? Like nothing. So, so we know that we have to make those starting decisions under conditions of uncertainty. Lucky for us, we have this really valuable option, which is the option to quit, to cut our losses, right? Uh, the problem is, and the irony is, that that decision is also made under uncertainty, that the objectively correct moment to quit, it's nothing particularly bad that's going to happen. It's, it's 1130 a.m., you're on the mountain. You have plenty of oxygen. There's no blizzard. Nothing is really bad that's happening right then, but it is the objectively correct moment to quit. But what that means is that if you quit that moment, there's still some chance. You, you, there's still some chance, probably too low, but certainly too low that you could still make it to the summit and make it back down alive. Some people did. I mean, under great duress, right? So, so all those biases that have to do with like, sunk cost fallacy with, uh, you know, not wanting to quit accounts in their life with over optimism, right? Optimism bias, for example, dig into those environments to make us keep going, even when we're not particularly good at it. And this is particularly true in poker for this reason. If I look back on why or won or lost, I have two things I could think about, skill and luck. Right now, it's usually going to be some sort of combination of the two, but we're binary in the way that we think. So as I'm looking back on that, something called self-serving bias is going to dig in. And self-serving bias is just this. I won because I played awesome and I lost because I got unlucky. And you hear people say this all the time and they will continue well past the time that it is obvious. I mean, I'm talking years and years that it is obvious that they have no business sitting at a table. But the thing I love about the Everest example, which we haven't talked about, and I didn't think about until this conversation when I was reading the book, that one o'clock turnaround time, that's a veteran insight. 
If you were that is. if you were on that mountain and you looked ahead and you thought three hundred meters, I'll I'll be there by I'll make this easily. And okay, if I get there by two o'clock, how long could it take me to get down? It's downhill. I'm gonna do, do, do. the fact right. that that was understood and accepted as the turnaround time, and they still didn't do it is unbel- is so fascinating because in real life. You rarely know when to cut your losses. You might in poker because poker is a very constrained game. Oh, no, no, not, you could. No, not in the middle no, of you, the No, but you could. You could if you're a good player. You could figure out because the odds are very yes, constrained. Yes, you can get close. But in real life, the finish line is usually not clear. The turnaround point is not clear. And so you're always going to often, because of that, for lots of the reasons you've been talking about, going to push beyond one o'clock. But in this case, the tragic case of Mount Everest, that one o'clock wasn't just like, and hey, I think one o'clock would be a good time to turn around, or I think it's going to take me a while. No, it <laughs> would. Yeah. So, so first of all, let me just say in poker, the, the problem is that it actually is very hard to figure out for sure because you can't see the, the down cards. Good point. So everybody's cards are face down, right? So trying to figure out when the odds go against you is actually quite difficult. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and not only that, even when you've decided that maybe your hand isn't going to win, you have the option to bluff. True. So so this is part of the reason why quitting is so darn hard. Whereas in chess, it's a much easier decision for the reasons that you say. It's pretty obvious that you're about to get checkmated, right? Like or you're down okay. you're down a castle, you're down a rook, it's right. over. Over right. the good play. Right, exactly. So you know, you you really know what your position is there. So this is part of the reason why people can make a lot of money at poker because the better I am at figuring out the appropriate moment to turn around, what the turnaround time actually is, the better off I'm going to be in comparison to other people. And it's actually an incredibly hard problem. It's actually very much like in life, right? I don't know. I don't know all the information I have. If I knew it, I could calculate the odds. Right. Like if I had the information in front of me, I could surely do some quant work on it and figure out what my odds are. It'd be pretty simple quant work, as a matter of fact. Um, I could create a game theory optimal table and I would know exactly how often I should bluff and exactly how often I should fold and whatnot. But I got to figure out what the other person's holding. Yeah. Right. So, so this becomes, this becomes actually quite a big problem. But yes, this is the thing is that. You know, we can think about these these quitting problems twofold. One is that it requires you to be able to forecast into the future, right? So that's that idea of, um, uh, you know, I've got a startup and I've missed, I've got money in the bank, but I've missed, uh, you know, I've missed some targets. I'm looking at what month over month new user growth is, you know, whatever, and these signs are pointing to things are kind of bad, but I've got money in the bank. So what I have to be able to do is foresee that the signs that I'm seeing right now that have to do with, you know, the exploding cost of acquiring a customer or whatnot, that they're, they're, those signals are adverse in, in a way that are going to tell me that I'm not going to get to a venture scale business here and I ought to quit. Right. So that's a forecasting problem. I got to get myself into the future. Now, what you're describing is that there's also a different type of time traveling that occurs, which is either the whole of your past experience helping you to figure these things out or people who have done it before you. So on the case of Everest, it's people who have done it before you who say 1 p.m., that is the time. Things that happen after that are really bad and don't keep going after that. And we need to pay attention to those people because when we think about life, it's very rare that we get get to run a Monte Carlo. But if you've had lots and lots and lots of people go up that mountain, they've run a Monte Carlo for you. A Monte Carlo being a simulation of many, many trials so you can get an idea of the risk. 
Right. Exactly. Sorry. Yes. Exactly. Uh, my, my, the, the geek in me yeah. comes out occasionally. Um, so, so now you've got your Monte Carlo simulation, right? Because you have all these people who've done it before you. Uh, and man, if you're not paying attention to them, what a waste. Because that's a real, that's a real gift that the world is going to give you because it's so rare that we actually can run those kinds of simulations in order to get some guidance on what the appropriate sticking or quitting situation yeah, is. In real life, the mountain you're climbing is not the same as the one that the other people climbed and therefore you can convince yourself, et cetera, et cetera. I, I want to close, right. I want to close with um, a, a, another wonderful image in your book, which I think is very powerful and very useful. And, um, often goes against our psychological grain, which is the monkeys and the pedestals. Talk about that image and what, how to use it for your own, one's own purposes. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of the impediments to quitting, right? Uh, finish lines, um, they make it hard to quit. You know, those goal, very clear goals, uh, good side to those and bad side to those. Uh, issues that have to do with identity, who you are, but there's all these issues that have to do with um, resources that we put into things. So let's just call that broadly capital. Um, and capital isn't just money. Uh, it can be your time and attention and effort, right? So we know that once we started to to invest capital in something, that uh, that capital itself is going to make it hard for us to walk away. Partly because we, we as humans tend to think about waste as a backward-looking problem when it's really a forward-looking problem, right? I don't want to quit now because I'll have wasted my time. Like, for example, like if you if you worked really hard to get a PhD, it's very hard to walk away from academics if that was your plan because then I'll have wasted, why was I in the PhD program? I'll have wasted my time, um, uh, so on and so forth, right? But what we really care about is if your goal is to be happy and fulfilled, uh, is the path forward the way to do that? But we don't think that way. So monkeys and pedestals is really trying to get you to reduce, reduce the debris that you're bringing into any decision to quit. In other words, to minimize the capital that you spend before you figure out whether something is worthwhile in continuing or not. So that's the point of this mental model. It comes from Astra Teller, who is the CEO, otherwise known as Captain of Moonshots, um, over at Axe, which is Google's in-house innovation hub. So they're trying to take world-changing ideas uh, from idea to commercialization in five to 10 years. Um, so obviously this is very uncertain, right? Like, I mean, they're really working in in, in uh, places of high uncertainty. We're not talking about incremental change where you kind of know exactly what the outcome is going to be. This, they're delving into the unknowns. And so they use a mental model and try to try to help them to figure out how to approach these projects so that when they find out, so they can find out what they need to know as quickly as possible in order to be able to, as they think about all these options that they consider, that they can quit all the options that aren't worth pursuing, that aren't going to get them to where they want to go and concentrate the capital on the options that are worth pursuing. So that is their goal, just like the cab drivers, right? Okay. So monkeys and pedestals goes like this. If, let's imagine that you've decided you're going to make a bunch of money uh, by training a monkey to juggle flaming torches while standing on a pedestal. What part of the project should you approach first? Building the pedestal or seeing if you can train the monkey to juggle those flaming torches? And Astro Teller's insight is you better train the monkey to juggle the flaming torches because otherwise, what's the point? Right? So he's saying... Um, the hard part of the problem 
the thing you don't know if you can do is whether you can teach that monkey to juggle flaming torches. That's the unknown. And so there's no point in doing any other part of the project if you haven't solved for that unknown. That's insight number one. Insight number two is that if you do build the pedestal, you will feel like you made progress, but you will have made no progress at all because you already know you can do it. So therefore, you've learned nothing. It doesn't actually advance you towards your goal in really any way because you, you're you doing something. I mean, you can turn a milk crate upside down. Like you're doing something you already know you can do. So that's that's insight number two. And insight number three is that in 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 uh, creating that false progress by building the pedestal, you have now created sunk costs. You have now created ownership over the pedestal, endowment to the pedestal. Your identity is now uh, more deeply entwined in the thing that you're trying to do. And so now, when you uh, find out that the monkey's super hard to train, uh, you're much less likely to quit because you have built the pedestal. All right, so. I'll give you an example of monkeys and pedestals. Um, I assume you've heard of the Hyperloop. Uh, so trying to sort of vacuum tube passengers from New York to LA in two and a half hours, like in these vacuum tubes. So yeah. it's a Elon so Musk project. Yeah. Well, it's also a Virgin. Virgin is okay. doing it as well. Great. So, um, yeah. So, uh, so Astro Teller, so Google, uh, X was approached about this project. They were pitched it. So um, after they pitched it, the team at X did a monkeys and pedestals exercise, which is what they always do when they're thinking about a project. And they said, okay, what are the monkeys here? Well, the monkey that obviously might come to mind is, can you actually build something like that that will work, right? That will actually cause something to go through a vacuum tube. And that that technology was already proven. So that wasn't a question. You you could definitely move things through vacuum tubes. So um uh, so that was not actually a monkey. Uh, but they did identify two other monkeys. One was a regulatory issue. Um when you're building that you got to go through like how many different townships, I don't even know. Each of them is going to have different regulations. I mean, my gosh, it's a beast. The regulatory issue is a beast, and as Astro Teller said, we're Peter Pans with PhDs. I don't know if we can solve that one. So they felt that that was a pretty big. Say monkey. that again. They're Peter Pans with PhDs. What are they going to do with the regulatory issues? I mean, they're not going to be able to make any progress on it. Yeah, that's what they felt like. They felt like it was a pretty hard okay. one. Um, and then the other thing, actually, the other monkey, which is the more significant one here, was, well, gosh, if things are, if this thing is moving so fast that you can get from LA to San Francisco in two and a half hours. Can we actually stop it and not kill everybody on board? So that's a pretty big monkey. Yeah. I don't know if you can teach that monkey to juggle. So, um, so they thought about that and they said, well, what would we have to do in order to be able to know that we could stop it safely? And they realized they kind of did some math and they realized we're going to have to build almost the whole system to figure that out. And so we're going to build this humongous pedestal before we ever know whether we can solve the monkey. This isn't for us. Yeah, so they rejected it. Now they rejected it in 15 minutes. <laughs> now let's really, that's how long it took them. Let's let's, that's why this mental model is so powerful. So let's now flash forward many years to Virgin that is doing it. 
You can look it up. There's a recent New York Times article. And Virgin's uh, Hyperloop project has run into two humongous problems. Um, I think they've raised like over $100 million. So they spent millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. So much money. So much time. And they've run into two problems. Can you guess what they are? Hmm. Could it be the regulatory problem and the stopping problem? <laughs> yes. So the regulatory problem, they don't think they can solve. It seems to be really thorny. The stopping problem, they've managed to build a sixth. They've got, they've gotten, they've built enough of it to get it up to a sixth of the speed. That's it. So they haven't really ever done a real safety test. Hmm. That's as far as they've gotten. And so now remember, so remember, Astro Teller also has this insight that once you've built all these pedestals, which they've done, right? Because they're building the system, which is a big pedestal because you already know you can do it. Um, that when you butt up against those intractable monkeys, you won't stop. It's a great. And that's exactly what's happening because they're not stopping. Instead, they're pivoting to say, well, we're not actually going to bring people on this thing. We're just going to transport cargo. It's like cargo. What that that we already know how to get cargo from one end of the country to the other. It'd be better to have it be a little about? bit faster, but it's a really expensive way to get a little bit faster. Oh, right. So they were trying to create world-changing, innovative change, and now they're creating an incremental yeah. improvement over the current way that we transport cargo because they won't give it up, which would be probably the correct answer at this point. Yeah. Um, I just have to say that I, I want to reference the Mary Hirschfeld episode we did where she defended uh, the rationality of sunk costs. And as an economist who for years said it was the, the quintessential example of irrationality, she did make me think about the that there are some virtues to ignoring sunk costs, even though in most situations they're rational. They are a commitment device. And so, you know, buying the gym membership is a way to, uh, and if you ignore the sunk cost, it's a way to actually maybe get you to the gym. So, We'll put that link up to that episode. You can see whether you're convinced. That, that's by it. true, although although we know that people don't use them. So yeah, well, it's um, not, look, it's not here, the best here, here's a good example. Here's a good example of an incredibly perverse use of that. Okay. Um, so the California bullet train, which is supposed to connect L.A. to to Sandy uh, to San Francisco to the north, um, in 2010 they floated a bond for nine billion dollars on a 33 billion dollar projected budget for high-speed rail. It's going to be a bullet train like, you know, you see in Japan. Um, the first section of track that they approved was between Madeira and Fresno. So this is on flat land in the Central Valley. Let's call that a pedestal because we know we can build track on flat land. Um, so that was what they approved. Um, they broke ground around 2015. In 2018, someone says, ooh, we have a problem. We just happened to notice I like literally, I mean, this is basically how it went. We just happened to notice that there's two mountain ranges, the Tehachapi Mountains that are to the north of LA and the Diablo Range, even bigger, to the south of San Francisco. And um, just want to let you know, uh, don't know if we can blast tunnels through mountains that are in seismically active areas, nor operate a train safely through those things. Okay, well, I mean, come on, those are monkeys, right? And there's also a monkey, which is NIMBY issues, which is kind of similar to the to the regulatory yeah, yeah. issues. Not in my backyard. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So, um, 
So anyway, once they figured out, oh, there's this problem with the monkeys, the projected budget now exploded to $80 billion. It went to Governor Newsom to decide what to do. And he said, oh, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll build track. The next section of track will be between between Bakersfield and Merced, also in the Central Valley on flat land. Big pedestal. Uh, (laughs) Yes. And then we'll and then we'll build track from um, San Francisco to Silicon Valley, also on flat land. Okay, so he literally approved two more pedestals. Now there was there's been some articles now talking about what a disaster this is. The the budget is now well over a hundred billion. And they still have not done an engineering feasibility study on the mountains yet. It was supposed to be completed in 2021. That's now reforecast to 2033, but who knows? Anyway, I saw someone on Twitter defend it, saying well, it's better to do it in Central Valley for two reasons. One is it's easier. <laughs> okay, but who cares? Yeah. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to connect Bakersfield to Fresno? Yeah. Like, because that seems like about what you're going to do. Yeah, okay, it's easier. So that's a big pedestal. But then they said a really what I think is malign thing, which is if we spend the taxpayer money, it's more likely the NIMBYs will give up. And what I say to that, uh, I mean, it's a, <laughs> right, is, oh, sunk cost is a cudgel. So now you've yeah. spent $9 billion of taxpayer money on a budget that's gone from $33 billion to, I think it's the last projection was like 115 or so, right? And so now you're telling me that you're trying to beat the NIMBYs over the head with the sunk cost when you haven't even addressed the mountains. So you're going to continue building something that you don't know if you can build in a seismically active area. And you're going to spend a hundred billion more of taxpayer dollars. Insane. I, I mean, it's nuts. And so I think that's one of the worst things about some, what in a lot of ways, what politics does with sunk costs is they end up using it as a cudgel and what a waste of taxpayer money. See, that's the thing is that in service of, I'm going to, I don't want to waste 9 billion in taxpayer money. They're now looking to waste way more, <laughs> which if you wanted to like, address climate issues in California or better serve the Central Valley. It seems to me if you had a hundred billion dollars to create economic prosperity in the Central Valley or address climate issues in California, it could be done a lot easier than building track on flat land that goes from nowhere to nowhere. I will recommend the episode, EconTalk episode. I, I hope I pronounced his name correctly. I've now forgotten, but it's Bent Flyberg on uh, mega projects. If you Google Econ Talk mega projects, you'll find it. We will put a link up to it. Um, when you said that Virgin had spent $100 million, that's a lot of money. I'm thinking, not really, not compared to what they're going to have to spend to solve some of these other problems. Well, that's but, okay. but still a lot of money. Um, you almost got a PhD and you almost pursued an academic career. How did that inform your thinking about this book and um, your own experience there? Well, let me, let me just, I, I just would like to say that this is a very good lesson, which is we think about quitting as closing a door and sealing it shut. But for many things that we quit, if we stop thinking about it as a decision that we can't reverse, it will make it a lot easier for us because I am now an academic. I do research with Bill Tetlock. I do research with Marie Schweitzer. I do research with Jay Van Bavel up at NYU. Uh, Maurice is at the Wharton School. Um, Phil is at, at, in psychology and the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania. Um, I currently teach at the University of Pennsylvania. 
And I am just now enrolled as a graduate student with Phil Tellock as my advisor because those studies that I ended up doing that I said yes to were uh, large scale enough uh, and enough work that he said, just write them up. You should just re-enroll because then you can finish your PhD. Because I, I, I had done enough work for a dissertation at that point. So um, so there you go. So I circled back. Um, you know, not everybody circles back, but but you can. For many things that you choose to quit, you can go back. And it's something that you should think about. Um, I will say that my quitting then uh, really has informed kind of the rest of my life, which is I became a much bigger quitter. Um, because I realized, you know, I just realized like that fear of what's on the other side should really go away. Right. Because there's stuff on the other side. And I, I want to be clear. I, I know that there are people who have circumstances where they can't just go quit their job. Okay. I, I totally get that. Um, and, uh, I'm not suggesting that they do if, they need, you know, they have to make rent. So uh, people do, you know, people have more limited uh, ability to, you know, some people have more of an ability to quit than other people do that simply have to do with their circumstances. But what I did learn from that is that no matter what your circumstances are, if, are, if you can create one more option for yourself, you can be a little bit more ant-like, your life will be better because you'll have more, um, You'll be more rational. It will help you to be more rational about whether you want to stay with what you're doing or quit. So if you can just create one more option for yourself, you're better off. And then that comes up with like what the really sad part is, is that there's people who have lots and lots of options and yet they stay stuck in things, right? And think about all the people who don't have those options, who are stuck by circumstances, who would love to have that optionality to be able to go switch, Right. So I think that we really do need to be thinking about it this way. And for me, because I quit academics, um, what happened and I was forced to do it, I was sick. So I had to take time off. I discovered poker. And what I realized after that point is that there's usually something on the other side and that something might be really cool. My guest today has been Annie Duke. Annie, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Well, thank you. This was a lovely conversation. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.